0: It is good to see each of you this evening, especially if you're visiting with us. We're glad that you are here and we invite you back to be with us at every opportunity that you have. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read a passage that is familiar to all of us, one that is an extremely interesting passage if none other than for the fact that we read about Christ walking upon the surface of water. In Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22, Matthew records, and straightway Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship, and to go before Him unto the other side, while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up into a mountain apart to pray, On four separate occasions, at least that I can find, it is recorded for us that Christ made the statement, be of good cheer. We're going to notice three of those tonight. The fourth one is in Acts, where Paul, being alone, waiting for what he thought might be his execution, and Christ appeared to him and told him to be of good cheer. But it would fit in just exactly with these other three that we're going to notice tonight. When we think of the word or the phrase, be of good cheer, what normally do we think about? Well, when I think of cheer, I think of happiness. I think of lightheartedness. I think of not having worries of this world and, and just being in a happy, joyful state of mind. Not at all what the Lord is talking about. Now, as Christians, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. We ought to be joyful. But the fact of the matter is that life so happens at times where it becomes impossible for us to be lighthearted, for us to be joyful in the circumstances that surround us. Now, if we're thinking of lightheartedness, we're thinking of joyfulness within the circumstances that surround us. When Christ tells us to have joy or we Paul tells us to have joy even in, during times of trial. He's talking about that joy that we understand that when this life is over we will have eternal life and it will be given to the faithful. <clears throat> but the idea of be of good cheer, the phrase translated carries with it the idea of having courage when circumstances are dire. So, it isn't exactly what we think of when we think of be of good cheer. In this context, and in these four, particularly these three, we're going to notice, Christ is saying, be of good cheer, or be courageous in the face of dire circumstances. Well, think about it. You have these men going across the Sea of Galilee, a great body of water, great storms would come up, and they're in likely some sort of a fishing vessel. A smaller type of a boat. And it's being tossed around and it's, it's being upset upon the water. And that alone would frighten someone. I'm not a huge fan of open water. On one occasion, Nicole and I, were we were on a ship. And for one whole day, I could walk out on that deck and see nothing but water. I did not like that. And it was smooth sailing. I can't imagine being on a ship, being tossed around or, or what have you. But anyway, they're on this ship and it's being tossed around. Again, it's not a cruiser type ship that we would think of. And so they are afraid. And on top of that, perhaps they were a little superstitious as well. And they think that a ghost is walking on the water to meet them. And Christ says, be courageous... In the face of dire circumstances, because it is I. Do not be afraid. And so when we think of this idea of be courageous, let's think of, or, or be of good cheer, let's think of being courageous. Let me give you an example. Lieutenant General Lewis Burwell Puller, you may have heard of him, he was known as Chesty Puller. He is the most decorated Marine in the history of the Corps he received the Navy Cross on five separate occasions. He saw action in the Banana Wars of South America, in World War II, and in the Korean conflict. When he landed at Inchon, Korea, he saw North Koreans in front of him. He saw North Koreans to the left flank. He saw North Koreans to the right flank. And he saw the ocean behind him. Of course, being General... Chesty Puller, he said, that is great. He said, we've been looking for the enemy for some time now, and now we have finally found him. We are surrounded. He said, that simplifies things. Now they can't get away. Now, I think General Puller was a very unique individual. I don't know that uh, I would have quite looked at it that way. But he was a very unique individual, and... And he endured situations that most of us are not going to endure, but we can still learn from that statement, can't we? But really, we're not learning from that statement. That's a great illustration, but where do we really learn it? We learn it from Christ himself. Christ basically made that kind of a statement, didn't he? We face mankind's most wicked foe daily, Satan. We have to face him daily. Look, he wants us to lose our souls. He hates us to the very core of His being and to the very core of our being. He hates God above all things and to hurt God, He hurts His greatest creation. And we fight that every single day and that is a tremendous battle. Sometimes we, we do not consider it probably in the light that we ought to simply because it is a wage of spiritual warfare and not one of a physical nature. But we need to have the courage of which Jesus spoke. Now now General Puller had the 1st Marine Division at his disposal, but we have the Lord, the Savior. We have Him helping us and being with us and telling us, be of good cheer. And we're going to notice three passages this evening where he says that. And I want us to always think of standing strong in the faith with courage. That's what he means. The first instance that we're going to notice We just read it. He spoke these words on the Sea of Galilee right in the midst of a great storm as He walked upon the waters. And He wanted His disciples to be of good cheer. Why? He said, I'm with you. He wanted them to be of good cheer because of His companionship. That's our first point. The disciples of the past enjoyed companionship with Christ, didn't they? He promised it to them. He would send them courageously into the world to take what we know as the Great Commission to everyone that they could. Matthew 28, 18-20. In the final verse He said, And lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. They had a companionship with that man. And that's why they could endure the persecutions of the Roman government. They could endure the persecutions of the Jewish hierarchy because they knew Christ was with them. Now, They had the joy of knowing that they had heaven on the other side. And they could be of good cheer and courageous in the face of all of that understanding that fact. Peter and the other apostles recorded Acts 5.29. They stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin and they said, or asked the question, should we obey men rather than God? He said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They could stand up to the powers that be because they had good cheer. They were of good cheer. Notice what Joshua declared. We're very familiar with this statement. Joshua 24, 15. He stood before all of Israel and he made the statement. He said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It didn't matter to Joshua if anyone else ever served the Lord. As far as that relating to his family, because he was going to serve the Lord. Now, he wanted everyone to be faithful. But it didn't make any difference if they were faithful or not. It didn't matter to Noah as far as his serving God. No one else in the whole world except for he and his household were faithful, but yet he was faithful. He did not let that impact him. Christ has always been faithful in His companionship with the disciples of the past. But we don't live in the past. He's also been faithful with His companionship to disciples in the present. He is with us in spirit as we struggle each day to wage the battle that we wage. He knows what we endure in this world. It's not as if we can stand before God on the judgment day and say, Look, you don't understand what it's like to be a human in this world. Wasn't that the whole purpose of Christ's coming? to live as we lived god knows everything but he also knows what it means to be a human in this world the writer of hebrews said this hebrews 4:15 he said for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin He understands exactly what it's like to be a young person in this world. He he understands what it's like to have peer pressure placed upon him to do the things that people want to do in this world. And that doesn't just happen to young people. It happens from the day that we get old enough to be influenced by someone all the way up to the day that we are no longer able to be influenced. But Christ understands that. We're not going to be able to stand and say, You don't understand. Yes, He endured all things that we endure. He endured every temptation that this world has to offer, and I guarantee you maybe even more so than what we have endured. For 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew chapter 4, Christ was tempted by Satan himself. Now we have detailed for us the final three temptations. But for 40 days and 40 nights, and he did it on an empty stomach. He was weak physically, but he endured. Christ told the apostles as the storm raged, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. We fight storms on a regular basis. The storms of life. Can we not make that application to us? We have Christ with us. Why can we not say, I'm going to look to Christ. I'm going to do what He's asked me to do. Have you noticed? And it I know you have, and it just particularly sticks out in my mind when I read this passage. And Peter, of course, being who he was, he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. He said, come on. He stepped out on the water. You know, when we, we talk about Christ being the only man ever walked on water, well, that's not exactly true, is it? Peter stood on the water. He started walking toward the Lord, but guess what happened? When he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. He had to have been walking on the water, he would not have sunk. But he did not begin to sink until he no longer looked to Christ. See, that's a great example for us. We look to Christ as we battle the storms of this life, and he's telling us, be not afraid, it is I. In fact, be courageous, be of good cheer. We fight the storms of life. On another occasion, He told His disciples, John 16, verse 33, He said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Well, we've noticed that we can be of good cheer because He says, it is I, I'm with you, we have companionship. But now He's talking about something else. He says, be of good cheer, be courageous, because I have overcome the world. He completed His mission. He completed His mission. He did exactly what He came to do. In fact, He fulfilled the duty of the Father. He was not unsuccessful. God told Satan, who in the form of the serpent in the garden, Genesis 3.15, He said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and it shall bruise and thou shalt bruise his heel well I think he's talking about Christ's death on the cross it was a, a minor injury to Christ as far as in the overall scheme of redemption he came out of the grave but it was a death blow to Satan it destroyed him I tell the uh, was recounting the account when we were living up at on the mountain above Pikeville and and we were getting ready to move and I'd cut probably about 10 or 12 rick of wood and we burned some wood uh, as as we burned, uh, had a heat pump. And so I had probably eight rick or more in a, in a shed and I, then I had a huge pile of wood that I had not stacked up yet. And so we were going to move and one of my friends who burned wood, uh, I told him, I said, I'm going to load all this wood up and I'm going to bring it to you. Unless you have it, we'll stack it up and then you won't have to cut your wood. He was about 85 at the time and he was still cutting wood. I said, let me bring this wood to you and then that will help you out a little bit. Well, we were loading the wood and Alexandria was helping me and we got down and I was just nervous the whole time because it was in the summer, it was very dry and it just looked snaky to me. And so I told her, I said, you got to be careful while we're picking up this wood. So we got all the way finished and we were putting on the last few sticks of wood And I picked up a stick of wood from between my legs and there was a copperhead coiled up there, the biggest one I've ever seen in my life. And I said, well, (laughs) I didn't really know what to do. I had a big stick of wood in my hand and beside that copperhead was two other sticks of wood so the stick I had would not fit down in between that. And so I was was concerned, to say the least. And so I told Alexandria, I said, go on back to the house, I'll figure this out. So I saw a limb that was about this big around. So I picked that limb up very easily and got right over the top of that snake and I bruised his head. And then I was able to pick him up. That's what God's talking about. That's a death blow. When Christ came out of that grave, He bruised the head A terminal injury. And now we can be courageous. When we look at it in those terms and we understand what be of good cheer means, it makes a little more sense. At least it does for me. We can be triumphant because He was triumphant. Again, Matthew 4, first 11 verses, He He went through all of the temptations that this world has to offer and was successful. There's no sin in being tempted. We're all going to be tempted. The sin is when we give in to it. And if it had not been for that, we could not gain salvation no matter how much we resist sin. If Christ had not completed His mission, we wouldn't even be on one. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 17-22. He said, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sin." then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now Christ Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He fulfilled His duty. And thankfully for that, since He fulfilled His duty, we can find salvation. Because He completed the mission. He did what God sent Him to do. John 14, verse 6. Jesus told the twelve. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If we're going to find salvation, how are we going to do it? We've got to do it through Jesus Christ. If we want to be in heaven, it's got to be through Him. It can't be through anyone else. It can't be through any man who's ever lived. And there are a whole lot of options out there as far as the denominational world is concerned. A whole lot of options. But how do we find Christ? How do we find salvation in Him? He said in Mark 13, 31, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. It's His message, isn't it? It's His message. We have to stand on His message. We have to believe His message, John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. We look to His message. When we do that, we learn. We discover the way to salvation. It begins with that believing. And that believing leads me to say, I've got to change my life. I'm sorry for what I've done. Godly sorrow, right? Not earthly sorrow. Not worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow. I've hurt Christ. And that leads to repentance, Acts 17.30. Why? Because He's appointed a day. That's what Paul said. He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. Whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. Acts 17.31. We repent because there's a day coming and it's assured because He completed His mission. He was raised from the dead. We look to His mission in And we make that good confession in the presence of people. Matthew 10.32 Because if we do not, He will deny us before the Father. Matthew 10.33 We look to His message and we submit to baptism. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. But then what do we do? See, that's just the beginning, isn't it? I can remember years ago when I was a young man I was about 15 years old, and I began to practice karate. I was a karate player, and I enjoyed that for many years. And and at the age of 19, I got my first black belt. And I thought, boy, I know it all now. I can do my own thing now. See, what what really, what that was, it just placed me in a position to be able to learn some things, right? I began to continue my training, and uh, ultimately... Earned a second black belt, but it was only at the time when I had the basics down that I could actually learn some things. See, that's what happens when we obey the gospel. We obey the gospel, we learn the very basic fundamentals of how to be a Christian, and then we're in a position to learn. And that's when Christ, talking about enduring to the end, Matthew ten twenty two, those will be saved. Brother Joe and I were talking for a few moments this morning after the Bible class, and we were talking about this idea of walking in the light. And I agree with him. I think we need to focus on that a little more sometimes and explain that a little further. In John, First John 1, 6-7, John wrote, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, the point that Brother Joe and I were talking about was that statement, we are to walk in the light as He is in the light. Well, what exactly are we talking about? What does that mean? We understand that Christ is perfect, right? He is walking in the light, but He's walking in the light because He is the light, right? He is the light. We have to walk in the light as He is in the light. Well, what does that mean? We can't be perfect. We all make mistakes. Well, we understand that. When we continue to read down that statement, the very next verse, John explains how we remain in the light. When we sin, we confess our faults one to another, and Christ is just to forgive us. We're not perfect, but when we walk in the light, and Christ's blood is continually being in contact with us, it's as if we are perfect, because those sins are removed. God says when the sin is removed by the blood of Jesus, it's remembered no more. It's as if it never happened. So as we continually walk in the light, we continually repent of sins, confess those things to God, then we are in it as Christ is in it. Because He was dedicated in His mission. He was faithful in His mission and He was able to complete His mission. If we choose not to walk in the light, we're not going to enjoy the comforts and the pleasures of heaven. Instead, being like the rich man, those who are found unfaithful will lift up their eyes being in torments. Luke 16, 23. I think in the modern time, we don't talk hardly enough about hell. That's not a, a topic that really most preachers enjoy preaching on. It's not a topic that we necessarily enjoy hearing about, but it's one that we ought to talk about. Eternal punishment in in hell is taught in the Bible, it's declared by reason, and it is demanded by justice. We have to be in the light. We have to take advantage of Christ having completed His mission so that we can avoid that. I want us to know, though, hell is the eternal abode for the departed spirits of wicked people people who have not lived in the presence of God. But hell was created for Satan. Hell was never created for us. Hell was created for Satan and his angels, period, Matthew twenty five forty one. But we can join them if we choose to do that. We need to keep that in mind. Hell is nowhere where we want to be. Notice the things about hell. Everything about hell is what we fear most. Darkness. Fire, loneliness, no rest. We've talked about this before. We I have been so sleepy before I could hardly hold my eyes open. Normally when we're on a long trip driving, right? You can't stop, can't pull over, you just gotta keep going. And then when you pull into a rest area because I travel with five women, and you lay your head back for just a moment, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that pleasurable? but it doesn't last long, does it? You've got to get back on earth. Well, you don't have even a few moments of that in hell. Heaven holds what we want to have. In heaven, we never have any more goodbyes. In heaven, we have no more disappointments. We have no more discouragements. We have no more disease and sickness. And there is no more sin. And that's where we want to be. I want to notice finally tonight, Jesus said to the sick man, with palsy. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven. Matthew 9, verse 2. Be courageous because your sins have been forgiven. He could be of good cheer. He could have great courage because of the compassion of Christ. His compassion released him from sin. That was the only way he could be released from sin. Because sin is man's greatest problem. In fact, have you ever thought about it? The Bible is a book about sin. Well, someone says, I thought it was a book about salvation. Yes, it is from sin. I thought it was a book about a Savior. Yes, it is a Savior that keeps us and and brings us out of sin. Now, we all know about the short span of time from The creation of Adam and Eve until the time that they were cast out of the garden. I don't know in in days or weeks or months how long that was, but it lasted for less than three chapters. So that's not very long. From chapter 3 onward, man is a fallen being, even until today. We're not where we were originally, where we were created in searching for the justification that comes only through faith and obedience. That's what we're doing. We've been doing that all along now. Sin is wholly destructive. We need the compassion of Christ to save us from that. Notice what sin does. It destroyed the peace of Eden, took that out of the way. When the first couple uh, gave in to the sin of temptation, they understood for the first time in a very personal way what sin will do to you. Destroys you. They were stripped of their innocence. They were filled with shame. They became excuse makers. They blamed everyone but themselves for their sins. And Adam went so far as to blame God for making him sin. He says, Adam, what have you done? Well, this woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate it. If you hadn't have given me the woman, in essence, that's exactly what he's saying. You gave me this woman and she caused me to sin. We remember Cain, right? Earth's firstborn. He sinned in matters of worship. He gave God what he wanted him to have instead of what God commanded. When we think of worship, we need to understand worship is not for us. We're not to be entertained in worship. Is it enjoyable? Amen. Absolutely it's enjoyable. I enjoy singing with the saints. I enjoy congregating and And praying together, it's enjoyable. But is it designed for Rick's enjoyment? I'm not the audience. God is the audience. And what He says He wants is what we need to deliver Him. Someone says, well, we use the instrument. Well, now the writer of Hebrews said, we offer up the fruit of our lips as a sacrifice to God. Okay? Paul said, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. That word, solo. translated sing in there means to pluck. But in the Greek structure, the the context tells you what the instrument is. Making melody in your heart. We're to pluck the heart strings. God asked for singing. We can't add to that. John forbids that in Revelation, right? Don't add to. Moses forbid it in Deuteronomy. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just simply do what He said. And we offer up the fruit of our lips. Someone says it sounds better when we have an instrument. Well, it may sound better, but to who? Well, we're not the audience though, right? It may sound better to the human ear. Let me ask you this. Have you ever smelled burning hair on an animal? Or just burning hair, period? One of the sickest smells that I think I've ever smelled in my life. Burning hair. What God call it? Sweet savor. He said, when you burn a sacrifice, it's a sweet savor. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine how stinky it must have been around that altar. As those animals were burning, and that flesh was burning, and that hair was burning. But God said it was a sweet savor to him. So, who does the music sound better to? Me or God? See, we have to remember, Cain sinned in matters of worship. He gave God what he wanted God to have. Instead of what God asked for, he refused correction. He became enraged and eventually murdered his brother because of jealousy. Noah lived in a world overflowing with sin. Talks about the sons of God. Now those are the righteous people intermarrying with the daughters of of, uh, of men. Those are the wicked people. And that descendant or those descendants formed unions. That created the most vile and sinful people this world has ever known. Even until today we don't know the extent of their sin. Their thoughts were only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 5. And their actions brought about the greatest destruction this world has ever known. Abraham gave in to sin and it affected his whole family. On two occasions he lied about the relationship he had with his wife. Oh, she's my sister. Isaac learned to lie and he did the same thing. Genesis 26 verse 7. Esau was sensual and worldly, totally lacking in spirituality. And then we come to the great man Jacob. I have a hard time studying about Jacob. He really bothers me. He was a deceiver, he was a schemer, and he was a liar. Now Jacob was not what God needed him to be. But let me tell you what I take away from that account. If Jacob can become what God needs him to be, so can I. And he did become what God needed him to be. His older sons took his youngest son at the time, Joseph, stole him away out of his father's home, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery, hoping that he would die. Yet he lived. Reuben had an incestuous affair with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Judah had an incestuous affair with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Genesis 38. But look at what sin's done all throughout the world. Others have suffered. What about Pharaoh? Because of his sin, he and his army were destroyed and Egypt suffered. The time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, all because of sin. All because of sin. The book of Judges is the darkest hour in the history of God's people. In and out, in and out of sin, never being faithful Sin caused Peter to deny the Lord three times. It caused Judas to sell Him for the price of a common slave 30 pieces of silver. And we could go on and on. Sin is our greatest problem, and we need the compassion of Christ to save us from it. But I want us to know something else. The book is a book about sin. But it's a book about salvation from sin. God would not allow the first couple to leave the garden until He had given them the promise of redemption. God the Word took upon Himself flesh, dwelt among men, and gave Himself the greatest act of compassion the world has ever known. John 1, 1-3 and verse 14. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all given the same promise that through them all the worlds could be blessed. And that Christ would come through their lineage. And we have a great promise. Redemption of sin. Forgiveness of sins. But if we're going to be able to take advantage of that. If we're going to be able to reach out and grab that. We have to be of good cheer. We have to be courageous in our fight against Satan and in our lives every day. We have to show that courage in the face of Trials and we have to be obedient to God if we want to access His gift. He's provided it for us. But we have to accept it on His terms. And He's willing to do that if we'll take it. Be courageous and let's fight the sins of the world. I want to leave us with this thought. In, in his writings, secular writings, Zig Ziglar described the courage we must have in life. He is a writer of... Uh, uh, I can't remember now, the word just escaped me. But anyway, he writes books that encourage, right? Makes us want to better ourselves. He made this statement about the courage we must have in life. He said this. He said, I would go after Moby Dick in a rowboat and take my own tartar sauce. That's courage, isn't it? Be of good cheer today. Be courageous today. Dedicate or rededicate your lives to, to God whatever your case may be, and we talked about how you do that. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.